Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I am thrilled to be interviewing the legendary Mary Garrett about her new book, Artemisia Gentileschi and Feminism in Early Modern Europe which was published by Reaction Books in June of 2020. Dr. Garrett is Professor Emerita of Art History at American University in Washington, DC. And over the course of her career, she has become widely known for her groundbreaking feminist scholarship. She is the author of numerous books, including three on Artemisia Gentileschi, as well as Brunelleschi's Egg, Nature, Art, and Gender in Renaissance Italy. With Norma Browdy, she co-edited four books on feminism and art history, all of which have become vital texts in the field. She was the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Women's Caucus for Art, and she also received an award from the College Art Association for her pioneering feminist scholarship in 2000. The book she wrote that we'll be discussing today breaks important new ground by placing the Baroque painter Artemisia Gentileschi in the context of women's political history. It methodically demonstrates that Artemisia most likely knew or knew about the work of contemporary Venetian feminist writers. By showing the interconnectedness of the artistic and literary traditions of the Baroque period, Garrett reveals a network of women challenging the patriarchal conditions of their time. Through discussions of the subtle signals emitted from Artemisia's paintings, Garrett sheds new light on this now famous artist, providing a full portrait of a strong woman who fought back through her art. This book, Artemisia Gentileschi and Feminism in Early Modern Europe, is a moving, inspiring, and authoritative study that I personally cannot wait to introduce students to. I am honored to have Mary Garrett as my guest today and to get to discuss this book with her. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mary Garrett, welcome to the show. Thank you, Allison. It's a pleasure to be with you today and to talk about the book. And uh, if I can say this, I'm very happy to be interviewed by someone who uh, is a graduate of the university that I, the department that I taught in for so long. We didn't actually overlap, uh, but it's very uh, nice to know that there's a kind of tradition going on at American University. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it up front. Yes, full disclosure, listeners, I am uh, myself a a graduate uh, from American University where Mary taught for a a long time. As she said, we didn't overlap. The tragedy of my undergraduate career is that I didn't have a bunch of classes with Mary, but um, I I am definitely part of the the lineage very proudly of, of that particular, if I say so myself, feminist art history department, very strong one. So I wonder if you might begin uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself. I always find this maybe the most, just one of the most fascinating parts of these episodes. Uh, Where were you born? Where did you attend graduate school? You can tell us a little bit about your career at American University. And maybe what I'm most interested in, how did you become interested in Artemisia in this Baroque female painter at the, you know, at the moment in your career when it happened? So just kind of give us some of your background, if you would. Uh, sure. I, well, I was born in uh, Greenwood, Mississippi. Uh, I grew up in Indianola nearby, and uh, that's the Mississippi Delta. And I went to uh, undergraduate school at uh, Newcomb College, which is the women, was the Women's College of Tulane University, which had a strong art department. It's now Newcomb's become absorbed into Tulane now, to my regret. But however, 
um, I, good, good undergraduate uh, education. I went to graduate school. I started at, at Harvard, actually, and uh, was dissatisfied for reasons I won't go into, but I uh, completed my degree at uh, Johns Hopkins. And, uh, well, let's see, I started uh, teaching at American University eons ago, and I was there for quite a number of decades. Um, the, I'm trying to think your questions. I suppose the, uh, the key thing is really that my work on artemisia began in the, in the early 70s, I guess I would say, and perhaps I can just segue to that because we don't need a full uh, biographical <laughs> career sure. here. Uh, but that, that, that would be the interesting. I mean, I was an art history major in all my education and, um, you know, strongly educated in that regard. However, in the early 1970s, uh, there was no such thing as feminist art history. There was no such thing as uh, studying women artists. In fact, the, the first wave of interest in women artists came in, I would say, the early to mid-70s, along with the women's movement in mm -hmm. the country. And in our field, in art history, uh, several women were, mostly women, were uh, beginning to write books about women artists, which might have a chapter on one artist or another. One of those books, one of that handful of books, was one by Eleanor Tufts, uh, Our Hidden Heritage, published in, I think, 1976. I'm not quite sure. And I was looking at that book, as we all were, with great excitement uh, and flipping through that I had no particular interest in Artemisia. I knew very little about her. Nobody did. Uh, and I flipped through the book and saw they were all black and white illustrations. I must tell you, there, were no such thing, there was no such thing as color illustrations, maybe a rare one, maybe one in a book. Uh, as a frontispiece or something, wow. but you didn't have them. But anyhow, I saw this black and white, rather poor by our standards today, illustration of Artemisia's uh, self-portrait uh, painting, The Allegory of Painting. Uh, it, uh, it's really now called The Allegory of Painting because we're not certain it's a self-portrait. At any rate, I saw that and it immediately perked my interest, piqued my interest in an artist about whom I had only barely heard. Um, because of something about that picture that was very unusual. And that was, I don't think I'll go into the details of this now, we can talk about it later perhaps, but something about it was really unusual, something she did that only a woman could do and a man couldn't do. And I thought, my goodness, she's really aware of a lot of issues. And I then looked into that painting a little more. I guess I wrote an article about it first, an art bulletin article, which came out several years later, 1980. And this was still at a time when the discovery of women's artists tended to be, it was happening. Judy Chicago's dinner party, uh, you know, sort of commemorates that moment of the mid 1970s when we, uh, we were all discovering this whole hidden heritage as, as Ellen put it. Um, but uh, my article came out in 1980. Uh, it then, I then decided I wanted to go further I wrote an article on the Susanna and the elders because the other thing that happened in that period was 1976, the uh, great women artists exhibition, uh, which opened in Los Angeles and went to, uh, to Brooklyn, curated by Anne Sutherland Harris and Linda Nochlin. Um, uh, well, I'm losing the, forgetting the title of the thing for the moment, but at any rate, it was a, the first major exhibition of women artists through history from the 16th century to the present. Um, and that was an exhibition that, as I say, opened in Los Angeles in 76. I think that was the same year I gave my Artemisia paper. I'm not quite sure at the College Art Association. Uh, anyhow, um, we all saw that show. And I remember walking into the room where there were six paintings by Artemisia. On the wall. Nobody had ever seen such a thing. Six paintings by Artemisia Gentileschi. My goodness. And I, I was looking at the Susanna and the Elders and thinking, look at this. She, she's done it again. She's done something that, that men didn't do. Um, so I wrote an article about that. And by that time, I was really hooked. I started the book uh, around that time, and, and it, it was published. The first book on Artemisia was published in 1989. And so I think that's the story of my interest. It was very much stimulated by the, the, the context of the women's movement. And we were all participants as well as uh, scholars. And the thing that excited me and so many art historians so much was that here was all of Western art history that was going to need to be revised. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just let's find the women artists and plug them in. It was 
all the interpretations, all the readings of art, history, uh, images of art uh, were, were done through the lens of, of uh, masculine preference and taste and prejudice. Mm -hmm. So it had to be redone. So imagine, uh, I would speak to listeners who maybe have been trained in some other discipline than art history, just imagine if you had the prospect of changing your entire field of study completely. Astounding. It was, it was, it was really exciting, yeah. yeah. It was quite wonderful, a wonderful moment. And it, it fired so many of us to, um, you know, to get busy right away. And so it, it was really a matter of uh, introducing into art history and I'm speaking for a lot of people, certainly not just for myself. It was for the first time we introduced a new dimension into the practice of art history, which was a social dimension. It was the dimension of looking at cultural social factors as uh, both as um, as filters that you had to look, read through and dismiss or discard or weigh the value of, and also lenses through which you could look into the past and find new things. So I may be segueing a little bit off the point here, but it's uh, it's it's uh, I think important to realize that um, if you're looking at this book, this book came out of the other book, and it came out of a lot of other things. Um, but I, I, we can talk about this book whenever you want to start talking about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, another chapter. I do, but I'm I'm so glad that you you know, described this, this story and it's unfolding in terms of how you were first introduced to Artemisia. I, I don't know, I, I hope students who are listening really take that to heart that sometimes it's just you're looking in a book and you're struck by something you've never seen before and you start thinking about it and it leads to something else. And I'm so glad too that you, you described it as, you know, it, you were hooked. And I, I think that's such an accurate description for how we latch on to the subjects as yeah. art historians that we do. We just, we get hooked. We, we get almost obsessed sometimes with the, the subjects that we're studying and they grow and they shift and I think I'm particularly excited to talk to you about this book and and now we can segue to this book though I should mention that the the allegory of painting that you were just describing is actually on the cover of of this book um, yes. and and you do talk about and I think make a really strong uh, case for this not being a self-portrait though it comes it, it's not right up front in the beginning of the book I think it's towards the end but um, you have written as I said in the intro not one not two but this is the third book on this <laughs> artist and each one I think is, is so distinctive and, and covers such fascinating ground. So I'll mention you already did the, the original and it, I think it's still the, the epic monograph, the original monograph on Artemisia in 1989, which is subtitled The F Image of the Female Hero in Italian Baroque Art. Then you returned to her in 2001, though maybe you never left thinking about her. There are articles interspersed throughout here too, um, entitled Artemisia Gentileschi around 1622, the shaping and reshaping of artistic identity. And now this one. So um, I guess the next logical question is how you came to write this book in terms of what struck you as necessary that, that you wanted to produce another volume on, on this artist who just, you know, reap, you, you reap such rewards every time you look at her. There's so much to see in her oeuvre. Yeah, um, I had actually touched on, I was always interested in the subject of Artemisia's relationship to the feminism of her period. Uh, I just didn't know a whole lot about it. Nobody did really in 1989 or so, the 1980s, let's say. We knew a few things. And I, I actually, in one chapter of that original, of the 1989 book, I, I, I talked a little bit about some of the feminist writers that I'd heard of and other people had known about. But it really was not until... Um, and I, I did somewhat drift away from art and measure between that book and this one, I must say, but I, I, uh, an opportunity came along. I was invited to write a, um, a volume actually on a different artist for a wonderful series being published now by Reaction Books in London. Uh, the series is called, you know, X, uh, X and Y, in other words, Galileo and the mathematics of his time. And I said, I, I, I don't want to, uh, and things like that. And I said, I don't want to write about um, that another artist because other people have been working on that more than I have, but I do have another idea. And I would love, love to do Artemisia and, and the feminism of her time. And the editor, the publisher said, great. And so that, that's how this, it came to be. But clearly it was an interest that had been uh, at the back of my mind for a long time. 
And I was greatly assisted in this by the fact that between the, the two books, so much has been published on women writers of the period. I have to mention the uh, marvelous book series called The Other Voice in Early Modern Europe, uh, initiated by Margaret King and Albert Rabel Jr., uh, which is a many, many a, a translation, English translations of, of dozens of key texts of women writers in the period. Um, Italian, and of course, but Spanish, French, German, uh, and other languages. This has this is, tremendously expanded the study of writing, writers of the period. And as you can see in my case, assisting those who are writing parallel um, studies, uh, in, this, in my case, are artists. Uh, and so, uh, though I certainly read Italian, uh, it's not the same thing to read a text written in the 17th century in, you know, the original Italian and get everything that's, that's there. So, and I could read much more quickly too, I must say, so I could I read an awful lot more. Many, many more writers came into my ken uh, and all our ken. We, we've been learning over the decades, tremendous amounts about early modern women uh, in the cultural sphere. So that's that's how it came about, and um, it, these are meant to be intended to be short books, small books, and so that was fine for me too because I was ready to, uh, you know, do a kind of um, turned out to be more of a, a deep investigation than I had expected to begin with. But um, I hope that I at least you know piqued the curiosity of people who want to know more about these these writers and their um, relationships, possible relationships with Artemisia. I think you certainly delivered on on that. I and I'm glad you mentioned too that that it, it's not a short book, but it's so readable. I don't know how else to describe it. It just flew by. Like I found myself wanting to slow down so that I could enjoy reading it more and more. I mentioned at the beginning that that it's a very inspiring book, and I I don't quite know how else to describe it in terms of it's it's structured around. Uh, let me make sure I get this right. Seven total chapters with an introduction, and each one is is just so utterly manageable. It's it's not something where you, you sit down to read a chapter and and six hours later you're struggling to finish it. I just you know it, it there there's so much information packed into each one, but you've adopted a, a style that I think and it's beautifully illustrated. I should mention too that. There are just so many wonderful color reproductions. And I saw some works by Artemisia I've never seen before, though I'm not a specialist in the Renaissance. That's not necessarily surprising, but you you really have, have done outdone yourself. And I'm sure Reaction Books is very happy that that you know they contacted you. And I'm so glad to hear that they switched gears and let you write what you wanted to write about because it, it's very fruitful, the, the output. So I want to dig into the book itself, and I think you've already set it up nicely. I made a note to myself, um, the opening line of this book is so fabulous, and it, it's such a great summary of what you end up doing. You say, this is the very first line in the introduction, for too long, Artemisia Gentileschi has been treated as an isolated phenomenon whose radical pictorial assault on gender norms was unconnected to women's history. And then you launch from there and, and really give us, as I said in the intro, the sense of the interconnected nature and the expansiveness of feminist political writing and thought and painting and culture, which I have to admit, I, I was just astounded by. I just didn't know our own history in this way. And so I wonder if you might, you know, just take us through the book and, and describe the overall structure of it. And we have, you know, a couple moments where I'm sure I'm going to want to dig in and ask you a little bit more, but can you give our listeners a sense what, what is contained in this new book? Okay, well, thank you, first of all, for quite calling attention to the first sentence that I've never given any particular thought to since I wrote it. Uh, and I, I'm quite amazed that you found all that in that first sentence. I, I, I can't really quite resist telling you that the first sentence of my other book seems to have intrigued people too, because uh, it was picked up in use in a, in a, uh, a fictionalized uh, uh, BBC production about Artemisia. They, they quoted other things from the book without credit, but they paid that back eventually. Mm. And we don't need to go there, but it was fine. Uh, at any rate, the first line of that book was, there were many Caravaggisti, but only one Caravaggista. Mm -hmm. In other words, there were many male followers of Caravaggio, but only one female follower. And you can do it in Italian with one word. So it's kind of fun. Anyhow, 
Um, okay, thank you for uh, setting this up very, very beautifully. And I, I'm just trying to give you a sense of your listeners a sense of what the book is, tries to do in, in a short format. And by the way, I deliberately write to, to, to be for legibility and comprehensibility and to be read and to, that hopefully making it interesting, but always making it uh, as, as fluid and, and concise and direct as possible, because I think we all owe each other that at in, in this time, particularly. Yeah. Um, well, this book is, uh, has seven chapters, as you say. The first one is really a kind of overview of the whole picture. Um, I wanted very much to show that there was a context for Artemisia's art in the literary world. Uh, her art, as perhaps many listeners know, and you certainly know, her art in her painting, women resist male sexual violence. They uh, resist female stereotype. They transcend female stereotype, in fact. They imagine female political power. Now, all those issues were... Uh, of concern to writers in her time. Uh, there were misogynist treatises, uh, in, specifically when she was growing up, they, they were rather rampant at the time. Uh, those treatises provoked in turn feminist treatises. And so that she comes into um, her maturity at a time when three major feminist writers were uh, active in, in, in Venice, Lucrezia Marinella, Arcangela Taravotti and Moravata Fonte. Um, these were Artemisia's contemporaries. They intersected in Venice. Uh, we, Artemisia spent three years in Venice, 1627 to 30, and um, is most very likely to have known or met or known, certainly to have known of the feminist writers. Um, in, they, they, she, they were one degree removed from two of them. Um, Fonte had died before she came along, but Marinella, uh, she, she would have known that treatise through a mutual friend at the Florentine court. Arcangela Tarabotti in Venice was a nun. Um, Artemisia sold a painting to her brother-in-law, and you don't get much closer than that. You certainly have direct contact, maybe not, you know, friendship, but you can be well aware that they knew of each other's uh, existence. Uh, but that, that's really just the, you know, the personal part of it. it. It's so much bigger than that, the picture of what the writers were concerned about, what the painter was concerned about, and how many echoes there are between uh, her art and their, their writing. Um, so I, I, in the, this chapter, I try to trace the, the larger historical picture, the uh, beginning of the, what we would call today a feminist movement. It really was a feminist movement in, in the literary world, uh, starting with Christine de Pisan, the French-Italian writer who in 1405 published the famous, uh, brought out the famous uh, city of women, uh, the, the Cité de la Dame, uh, which was uh, a kind of response to Boccaccio, Boccaccio, he of the Decameron, had uh, written uh, a book on illustrious women, but it tended to be about, here are some famous women, and they are the exceptions to the general truth that women are inferior creatures. Women can't do anything, then here are a few who happen to, you know, get up on all two legs and do something. Uh, and it was really that bad. Mm. Um, but Christine came along and she, she too, has uh, this whole long catalog of, of famous women in history. But her point is not that they're exceptions. It is that all women are capable of this kind of achievement. This is, uh, they're you know, good exemplars of their kind, but it just shows you that the exceptions, you keep multiplying them and eventually you break the rule. The rule mm -hmm. doesn't exist. Yep. So Christine was followed by Italian writers, uh, Cassandra Fedele uh, is in South Rola, and Laura Ceretta, a rather important writer whom I do talk about a bit uh, in the 15th century. They, they all did what Christine did. They talk about the paragons of, of female achievement to Judith, Susanna, Lucretia, Cleopatra. Uh, and you can see that Artemisia, of course, is, is uh, working in the same venue, so to speak. She, she too is creating female archetypal or exploring themes that feature female archetypal heroines or heroes. Uh, now, Venice was a major site uh, in the 16th century, a major site for this, the gender wars, in effect, because they were gender wars. Um, we think of that one of the titles, the title of one of the chapters is Battle of the Sexes, and we think of that as a kind of 
you know, it'll be said sometimes, usually in a joking way, oh, that's the battle of the sexes. Well, actually, there was a historical context for that. Mm. Uh, the battle of the sexes, it was uh, called the Corel de Femme, the, question, the woman question. Well, there wouldn't have been a woman question if women hadn't questioned. I mean, it would, it would have been taken for granted that women were in their place. And so what's the issue? It, they, they objected to the idea that they were inferior. And so you have gender wars. Uh, in the 16th century, there was a flood of writings by women. Uh, by women. Uh, I'll name a few, and you, listeners may have heard of only one of them, perhaps. Veronica Gamba, Gam, excuse me, Veronica Gambara, Vittoria Colonna, Gaspara Stampa, Veronica Franco, many, many writers, very sympathetic publishers. And they published books by, by women poets and writers because they were readers because people wanted these books. They were wildly popular. They, they went out in many, many editions. Um, and in these writings, and, and, and this is a kind of long version of the first chapter, but I, you can tell me when I should not go into great detail. Uh, they, they openly challenged the male, the kingpins. Uh, Laura Terracini challenges Ariosto's Orlando Furioso, one of the most famous books of all time, uh, challenges its male bias. Tulia D'Aragona, writes the dialogue in which she, she's Tulia in the dialogue, gets the best of the Florentine intellectual Benedetto Varchi, a very famous guy. Uh, Artemisia similarly competes with Caravaggio. He had died by that time, but she, he was the most influential person on her art. Nevertheless, she wants to show that she's better than he is. She's better than the greatest. Mm -hmm. um, enormous ambition, by the way, on her part. And she offers compositions that improve his compositions quite subtly. Um, and so this is a, a, an important feature. So um, the, the women writers come on very strong and they, they were off, uh, uh, presenting a challenge directly to the male writers. Marinella and Tarabotti, those in Venice whom Artemisia uh, may have met, build on that tradition. They continue the critique to the point that there was a backlash. The men were, I think, and this is my interpretation, but it seems pretty clear uh, that they were, you know, probably threatened by the idea that contrary to what they were saying, women could read, they could write, they were intellectually as capable as men. Uh, that did not square with the common knowledge at the time. Uh, so there's a kind of backlash against it. And you see it in the, the, uh, the writer who knew Artemisia, very famous guy, made famous in Venetian context. Uh, who uh, uh, writes about Artemisia's art, and he picks out the most, the least threatening of her paintings to talk about. It's always really beautiful. You, you're a beautiful woman, and you write, you paint beautiful pictures of little children and so forth. Everything but the Judiths and the Susannas, the threatening works are not mm -hmm. mentioned. Sure sign that there's something about those that he just better not talk about at all. So you're seeing that kind of thing go on. So I, I really had a, a, a lot of fun playing the characters against each other in this chapter to give a kind of larger picture of what was uh, what the what the concerns were of the women writers. And although Artemisia never says a word about these writers in the, the few letters that we have, and we only have about well maybe oh, maybe 50 altogether, if you count the new ones that have been uh, published, relatively new ones been published uh, to a Florentine lover, uh, Francesco Maringhi. But we, we don't have any direct evidence from her that she knew these people. Um, and nor do we have, I must say, in any of their writings, any mention of her. So it's kind of frustrating in a way, where, where is the conversation taking place? Well, it's probably not taking place in Artemisia's letters to her male patrons. And it's probably not taking place. I mean, I don't know that any of these women wrote private diaries or they, they, some letters about Tarabotti have been published, but they're very formal letters that are written to, you know, about things that wouldn't necessarily involve her mentioning um, a painter in her period. So it, it was um, disappointing to me not to find direct evidence of, of connection However, the, the most important thing that I felt I could do was to read these texts closely with the knowledge that I bring to it from Artemisia's art to see what the uh, overlap of issues and concerns and what the, what the kind of responses to uh, discrimination might have been because the women talk about the writers talk about it artemisia who occasionally in her letters protest uh, this wouldn't have happened to me if i'd been a woman if i'd been a man uh, she'll say things like that uh, and obviously she's aware of gender bias but 
uh, only when she's angry at a patron would she say something like that. She would normally be very uh, circumspect and uh, discreet. So you, this is not where you're going to find that kind of evidence. I do hope that uh, scholars in time will dig deeper. Um, I was not able to dig deeply into archival evidence in this book. I've drawn very much on the archival discoveries of other writers, uh, but I, perhaps the future will, will bring more um, to light. We can only hope. And I, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's of course always what we want as art historians to, to find the smoking gun letter or the, the secret diary <laughs> yeah. that, that where yeah. she says, uh, you know, oh, well, my painting of Susanna means this. And I, I painted it because of that. <laughs> and I had, you know, wine last night with, uh, with one of these famous feminist writers. And oh, um, yeah. I, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't that be the discovery? Well, you know, time will tell. And, and I think, you know, what I've always been enchanted by about the study of the Renaissance and the Baroque is, is how much more shrouded in mystery, just because the documents are often just not there. They just don't exist. And I work on the 19th century where there is a lot more that exists. And I think artists are often um, keyed into the fact that their letters are going to be published later. So they, they kind of, you know, put, put a certain version of themselves out there, but it's a very right. different case with, with Artemisia. So from here, you launch into chapters that dig much more specifically into, uh, I would say, kind of groups of paintings. So the second mm -hmm. chapter is about Susanna and Lucretia, depictions of that. Um, the third chapter is about um, musicians and Magdalens and the fourth chapter, of course, every, everybody's going to go straight to it because it's on the Judith pictures, which have become so kind of pop culture uh, heavy in, in this particular Me Too moment. Um, how do you how do you want to do you want to kind of describe each one or uh, there are certain questions I want to ask about them, but are there, you know, moments in the book that, that stand out to you that that you think our listeners would be particularly captivated to know about? Um, yeah, well, let, let, sure, let's, let's do it. Let, let me just try to comment a little bit on the focus in each chapter, starting with Please, in order. Yeah. We don't necessarily have to get all the way through them, and you just pop up with any question you have or comment at any time. Okay. Um, the this, this cha second chapter, they, they, yes, they, you're right, they focus on particular groups of paintings, or in some cases, just one. But there's also a pre- um, heading and it gives you the subject of that chapter. So chapter two is called Sexuality and Sexual Violation, mm -hmm. Susanna and Lucretia. Um, and here it's, I think, important to realize, as I did not until I started reading the treatises, that uh, the, the feminist treatises, and particularly I discussed Moderata, excuse me, Moderata Fonte's Worth of Women, as it's translated, um, a, dialogue, a dialogue among seven women who are, are supposedly are sitting on the grounds of a, of a power Venetian palace that's also owned by a woman, and it's all you know a female community, so to speak, and they're all talking about their problems and they discuss sex very frankly, very openly from a woman's point of view. They talk about the problem of, of and here's the problem that fascinated me, and you'll see why in a minute. Uh, they talk about how. The, the, the unfair double standard that men are, uh, they're the ones who, who force their sexual attentions on women and the women have to resist because of the, that chastity is a very important issue, of course, if they don't deliver themselves chaste and unviolated to their future husbands, who would know who the progeny was? You have, can't control women if you don't have control of their chastity. And they're aware of all this, but they raised the, rather subtly the problem of, of their sexual desire. What are they supposed to do? You know, the men have it and they impose it on, try to impose it. The women have to resist, but what are they supposed to do about it? They, they're, they're being called to a higher standard, as usual. Uh, I mean, it's always a higher standard, but it's also harder work. Yeah. Uh, so so they, they, they talk about that quite openly. And they complain about men's control of women's bodies. This, this shouldn't be right. Well, then you look at, as I did, Artemisia's famous early Susanna and the Elders, where Susanna, unlike every other, almost every other version by a male artist, Susanna is not enticing her rape, would-be rapist with her flirtatious eyes. She's actually resisting them. She's pushing them away. Um, but we understand through the visual cues, and here's where I, I didn't take it far enough in the first book. I, I mean, that, that became 
a kind of standard reading after I wrote the first book, everybody you know, got on the band, my bandwagon, their own bandwagon too, to say, oh, look, she's, she's resisting. She's very virtuous. She's pushing away the rapist. Well, but, you know, the, you look at the painting closely, and I didn't see this dimension until I read the writers, that women knew about that. Women actually talked about this issue in their period. So Artemisia gives us these visual cues. The curious fact that one of the elders is young. Now, elders are by definition old. Yeah. Uh, one of them is a handsome young man. Uh, there was a whole lot of energy spent on uh, people trying to say, oh, that must be Agostino Tassi who raped Artemisia. And there's always the, you know, the, these effort to seek autobiography in these works as if that would make them better. No, it doesn't make them necessarily better. What's better is that she speaks for all women, yeah. many women, unfortunately, when she paints a picture like this. Uh, but not only that, we have other cues that, are, that the body, this is a body of a woman who's just moving from girlhood to womanhood. She's a body that's maturing almost before your eyes. Mm -hmm. She's becoming aware of her own sexuality. And we see, uh, as I discuss in the new book, we see the, um, she's giving us cues because she turned the back of her, her hair. The back of her head is uh, done up in a tight knot. That's what the face that she presents to the elders. But as she goes, bends her head down and looks down into her, her own space, we see these beautiful golden tresses flowing, flowing softly, sensuously. Uh, merging with the sort of sculptural foliage and the relief behind her. So we're, we're getting a sense of her inner life, the interior, are, are, well, I'd say Artemisia, but in this case, it's Susanna. Of course, she projects her own feelings and, you know, points of view into things all artists do, mm -hmm. uh, but it's meant to be Susanna. And so that's who she is primarily. Uh, at any rate, the, the point of the, that half of that chapter is to talk about that painting freshly now understanding that Artemis is up there with the women in, in talking about the issues, at least in her own pictorial language. Um, the other part, and I don't need to dwell on this particularly, but the figure, the patriarchal heroine, Lucretia, who commits suicide to, it's Roman, from Roman history. She commits suicide to preserve her chastity. Uh, for some reason on which all of the Roman Empire hinges on her chastity, the, the succession, and so Lucretia's heroized because she has, has uh, committed suicide because she was raped, and therefore she's no longer pure, and therefore she can't um, be heroic to men. Artemisia turns that symbolic character into an outraged rape victim who protests, it would seem, that ridiculous obligation that's been imposed on her. She said, instead of stabbing herself with a knife, or, you know, histrionically waving the knife, saying, I'm just about to stab myself, look out. She holds it upright as if she's asking God the question, do I really have to do this? Yeah. Do I really have to kill myself? So then there's a certain, it's, it's a very angry painting uh, in, on one level, but on the other hand, it's very funny. I mean, it's, it's a, it, and this is what uh, the other thing I got from reading the writers. Uh, it's the, the humor runs through everything. It, mm. It's to give you the, the kind of spirit of it. In Moderata Fonte's dialogue, the one I mentioned, Worth of Women, uh, the women are constantly uh, bringing out a kind of self-deprecating wit. They're very funny about, you know, putting themselves down, but there's a bitterness underlying it. It's really meant to be double-edged. Mm. You can see that. So this kind of double-edged humor is something I, I saw in Artemisia's art even before I found it in the writers, but uh, it was only a hint of it, and I could understand it better. Uh, understand that it really was it really was on purpose. I mean, she really is, to some extent, uh, sending a di different message to female viewers than to male viewers, mm -hmm. and she knows it. Yeah, I'm so glad that you described what I think is the the real breakthrough that that is in this chapter in terms of returning to look at that Susanna and the elders painting. I'm almost ashamed that I never realized that. It's, it's so obvious as soon as you pointed out that one of those two quote unquote elders is a young, handsome man. And, and I think you're so right in your description that you can almost see that she's becoming a woman. She's on that threshold uh, in the painting itself. And um, there's so many 
I'll apologize to listeners. My cat is making a lot of noise. <laughs> I, I, can, I imagine she, you know, she makes an appearance in almost every podcast episode I do, but she's particularly crazy today. So my apologies for those sounds. If you're wondering it, she's not hurt or anything. She just wants outside it. I don't know what she wants, but Mary, you, you throughout this book do exactly what you were just describing. And, and I was trying to kind of recreate, which is you return to looking at these paintings deeply of course, and you notice things and interpret them as meaningful, which is what we're supposed to be doing much of the time as art historians, in ways that I think are explosive. I mean, just completely recalibrate through subtle descriptions, our sense of the dynamics and the connections between her work and feminist thought and feminist humor, like you were just describing at the time. So I love to ask how scholars of your caliber do visual analysis or, or what we sometimes call formal analysis or ekphrasis. What is your process like for, you said before, you didn't even think about that sentence that I found so, so wonderful and encapsulation and, and the one in the first book too that others have picked up on. Uh, is it easy for you? I, that's probably a, a silly way to put it, but does it just kind of flow or do you really agonize over the construction of how to convey the meaning of these details as you're analyzing them. No, not at all. I mean, not at all. I'm just <laughs> struggling. Uh, somebody said, and I don't remember who, you know, that getting yeah, 98% preparation and 10% and 2% inspiration. And I think that's really it. Uh, you, I mean, the art historian, good art historians are uh, strongly uh, grounded in visual analysis. We have to be. Now, I was fortunate in some, one sense to grow up in the 1950s and 60s when formalism reigned in art history and that's all there really was it, mm -hmm. you, you could be for iconography but you had to be either for form or iconography you couldn't be both and you couldn't uh, have anything else uh, but it, it was a, an invaluable training a grounding I should say it's not training in the sense like military camp or something it's just teaching people how teaching one how to sensitize yourself to the visual language of art this is the language that painters speak they're speaking a different language. It's not words. Your job as the art historian is to find words to match what they do, but you have to learn their language. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't know how to do that, you're 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 not going to write good art history because it's it's. And this is where my background comes in. Maybe even bias comes in. Uh, it's always grounded in how the work of art speaks to you and and, and how it's in its own language what it's saying. Um, I was ashamed too that I'd never noticed. I mean, I, I think everybody got fixated on the young man and thought, oh, Agostino Tassi, so that's the end of that. But no, that this, it's there for another reason. And, you know, realizing that, realizing, uh, looking at the painting with fresh eyes, fresh uh, um, questions led me just to, you know, to write that. And so I, it, I can't claim any, you know, uh, genius here. It's, it's simply being, knowing how to, how to read it. And of course, bringing this fresh context of women writers' um, texts, which give a, a verbal, uh, ex, you know, counterpart, I should say, not a, a amplification, is to counterpart to, so that Artemisia's paintings begin to, I, I began to feel um, authorized to look at them in uh, as complex and subtle uh, units of visual speech because I had seen that that kind of thinking and creative uh, articulation was possible in that period. It was, it was, it happened. Women were that aware, extremely subtly, of, of extremely subtle issues, and they could talk about them verbally in text, and she was talking about them in, in her own language, as I say. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I think the next chapter, and I'm glad you pointed out that, that I was glossing a bit over the the, 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 the the subjects, the groupings of paintings are actually the subtitles of the chapter. So the next one is called The Fictive Self, and this is on musicians and, and Magdalene paintings, of which there are a number. And 
you really get a sense from this book too of the the ways that Artemisia repeats subjects but handles them in in really vitally subtly different ways in different moments in her career um, and and for different patrons of course that we don't always know who the patrons were so will you describe a little bit this chapter and you know I want to ask you about changing your mind in this particular <laughs> chapter was where you had this this moment where you admitted that the the Mary Magdalene picture from 1617 to 20 was one you had found, quote, disappointingly deficient in feminist expression. And you were willing to revisit this and say, you know, I think maybe I just didn't fully understand the, the full dimensions of feminist sort of thought in this moment. And now I see it is there. So will you describe this, this chapter a little bit? Yeah, I think you just described what I what I confessed or said. Oh, no. Very well, no, it's fine. I mean, we all should be uh, acknowledged when we change our minds. If we didn't change our minds, we'd be, you know, cast in concrete or something. Uh, but no, this this chapter, it concerns Artemisia at the Medici court in Florence in the 1610s. It was a world of theater and performance, actresses, musicians. She was at the thick of that, in the middle of it, as, as one who was uh, given patronage by the then ruling um, it used to be said the ruling Cosimo, Cosimo Secondo's Cosimo II, the Medici, uh, and his wife, uh, it used to be said parenthetically, um, Maria Maddalena, Mary Magdalene, Grand Duchess. Well, scholars have found, uh, Kelly Harness comes to my mind, has written wonderful work on this, that during that period, actually, the Grand Duke, Cosimo, was, was sickly, was ill, and he didn't really do much. Uh, Florence was effectively ruled by his wife, the Grand Duchess, and his mother, Christina of Lorraine, who was Maria Maddalena's mother-in-law. So it was what uh, Kelly Harness has called gynocratic rule. And uh, Maria Maddalena, the Grand Duchess, patronized a number of prominent women, um, the ludist and composer Francesca Caccini, uh, Virginia Ramponi, a Commedia dell'arte actress, and many, many others. I'm just picking out names of people that Artemisia probably knew and may even have painted, uh, certainly knew them. It was a very sophisticated artistic milieu, and Artemisia's art reflects that. Um, she may have painted a portrait of Caccini. I've identified as a possible portrait of Caccini, one painting, the lute player in the Spada Gallery, which is um, you know, very possible. At any rate, then a certain, another certain portrait by her of the Neapolitan singer Adriana Basile. So she, she was, you know, part of that whole world. But that world had a very, um, um, it, it, the, the dimension of feminism is quite interesting because, of course, in music, you don't quite see it expressed quite the way you do in words. Um, Francesca Caccini wrote an opera, Ariana, which offers a feminist correction to Monteverdi, her model. Uh, the scholar Suzanne Kuzik has written a wonderful book on uh, Caccini, and I was quite indebted to the, I'm very much indebted to interdisciplinary work throughout this, the course of my little book. Um, so Caccini exposes the masculinism of Ariosto's Orlando Furioso, that book again. Mm -hmm. um, and what interested me is that both uh, Caccini and Artemisia invent personas. They inhabit them and then they change to another. It's easier to see in Artemisia. She, in that period, she paints herself as a lute player. We know that painting and lots of people have seen it because it was recently acquired by the Wadsworth Athenaeum. Um, and she rather troublingly seems to be sexualizing herself. Mm -hmm. Just at a time when a few years after the rape trial, you would think she, the last thing she would do is present herself in that guise. And then in another, but, but that's a role. That's a role she was playing. There was actually a, a performance of one of Caccini's uh, ballets called uh, it was, uh, uh, Gypsies, and she's presenting herself as a gypsy musician. Um, in that same period, she paints herself, it's a lost picture, but she paints herself as an Amazon. Well, you see, if you try on different roles, you say, here I am as an Amazon, here I am as a sexy woman, you're, you're creating fictive selves. And the more you create, the more you throw shadows at the real self. You, know, you, you, you kind of protect the real self if indeed one knows what that is, mm. a question I explore in that chapter too. Yeah. Uh, women really have a clear sense of identity given the uh, uh, images, the labels that are imposed on them. Um, so th th there's a, a rich uh, world of fictive selves that Artemisia is creating. 
I think actually that she may have been influenced by uh, Caccini in one important respect. Uh, Caccini, as writers pointed out about her, tended to compose in musical modes. She would have different expressive modes for different uh, kind of musical compositions, and they actually had names, the Phrygian mode, the Dorian mode, the Ionian mode, I'm sure, a number of different kinds of specific emotional casts that uh, a, a mode would give. Well, it seemed to me as I, I looked at the three different versions of Mary Magdalene that Artemisia had painted in this period, each very different from each other, that she might be playing, experimenting with modes, with, with different expressive modes for that character. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the Petty Magdalene, as you mentioned, she plays with female stereotype. She takes this uh, stock character, who, by the way, Mary Magdalene, the reason there were so many of them is because Maria Madalena, the Grand Duchess, was taken with her, her archetype, Mary Magdalene. So she composes an opera, she commissions paintings. So this is the sort of generation of Magdalene's that comes out. But in this Pity version, the, uh, the one that I revised my thinking on, it's a strange picture because it's very elegant in a certain sense, very aristocratic. She's and she's weeping and looking up at limpidly at the sky. It's a it's a stereotype of female um, uh, piety, of, of a kind of anguished piety, and you know it's comic because her wig has slipped a little bit. I mean, she's she's really not quite all together. And if you look down, she's one of her feet is exposed. Now, it's okay for Mary Magdalene in the wilderness to have exposed feet or hair cloth, but in a Florentine dressing room with an elegant chair and a mirror and a fine dress, you would, she wouldn't have had to expose the foot. And when you look at the foot, what do you see? Well, she has a hammer toe. She's not a beautiful foot. It's not a beautiful foot. Mm -hmm. Now, that just, you know, troubled me subconsciously, probably. I can't explain that, so I won't think about it. And nobody has. But if you once you understand that this is played for laughs, mm -hmm. this is really and whether the Grand Duchess got it or not, I don't know. I, I can't possibly know that she was rather a stern woman who didn't seem necessarily to have a sense of humor, so as I could tell. But anyhow, she she's speaking to some audience that did appreciate it, and so there's one of her Magdalene's. And then she does another one, the one that's now in Seville, Spain, uh, a meditative version, more introspective. And yet a third version, which has become more recently, uh, more recently come to light, uh, she's a reclining figure, seemingly in reverie, dreaming, a kind of poetic reverie. So it's, it's a way to multiply the identity of that character, to give her different dimensions by showing her in different modes of presentation. And uh, interesting, and one more thing on that point is that uh, here's where I think Artemisia kind of superseded, I mean, maybe even competed with, successfully competed with the writers because they tended to treat these figures as stock characters. They never gave Mary Magdalene any particular fuller dimension than, you know, just, just the, the one. So uh, she, she's, she's kind of uh, almost literary in her way of trying to, to bring out more psychological depth. Mm -hmm. You know, it only as you were describing it, did I realize the affinity that, that, that this chapter on the fictive self, is, as you call it, really has a lot in common with the sixth chapter, which is on the divided mm -hmm. self. And yeah, you talk exactly. about the allegorical and the real. I don't know how, it, maybe I just read them several weeks apart and, and you know, had lost the thread and didn't connect them as one sometimes doesn't. But now I really see how, how parallel they are and, and how much the later chapter, you know, wants to get into, again, these conceptions of women. How are we supposed to live up to? How do we even know who we are in, in patriarchal societies when we're yeah. told what we have to be? Um, and, and the sixth chapter, of course, is where you get more into the, the self-portraits and, and, and the, the allegory of painting that we were describing before that, that likely is not a self-portrait. But in the two chapters before this, which are on the paintings, the various representations of Judith, and then, of course, the fifth chapter I love called Battle of the Sexes, Women on Top, which is about these very powerful representations of women who violate, very directly violate standards for how women are supposed to act and be through their power and their violence. Um, I, I would be remiss, probably, listeners would be upset with me if I didn't ask you 
threaded through all this is biography, Artemisia's real life, as you were describing it, the, the rape by Agostino Tossi and the effect that that has on her painting practice, whether it directly affects the subjects that she chooses. How do you, as an art historian, grapple with biography, you know, in terms of methodology, you admit at one point in the book that it's a, it's dangerous, you know, that, that it's a trap. And, and we often get attacked if we get, I think, too much into biography. But mm -hmm. I tend to stand by it, much like you said about formal analysis. I mean, I think the two pillars of art history around which we should constantly at least lean our biography and formal analysis. You have to look at the works and you have to think about who made them. Um, but mm -hmm. did you find it a real challenge in, in this book, you know, how to deal with who she was and what we know about her life? How do you, how do you draw those threads together with the works themselves and, and not fall into the dangerous traps? Well, let me try to answer that without falling into the trap of discussing the rape trial and how we handled that. Yeah. First. I just don't even want to. But yeah. uh, if I may start this, well, I mean, I guess the uh, uh, it, the point you raised that we often it's hard to get it right. Biography is obviously an important part of art history, and the uh, you see either too much or too little for some critics, but. It's called the biographical fallacy lies in basing interpretation too rigidly and deterministically on biography as biography's destiny. It means because she had this story, that means that's what the art is about. Most obviously, that's what the rape trial has done to Artemisia's uh, history. Yeah. And I think that, it, it, that the important thing in this connection is to remember that all artist biographies that we inherit are themselves interpretive constructions. In other words, a biography is not itself a, a given fact. It's somebody's interpretation of facts. Yes. So you have to, you, you're not you're working with, um, you know, something that's a, 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 an objective commodity that you simply throw into your text. Uh, the second thing I would like to say about that is my particular personal beef here, uh, which is that many great reviewers and critics of my, of my first book called it a biography. Every time I read that, I wanted to say, it's not a biography. I protest that it's art history. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, in our time, I'm asking to be downgraded because biography in the popular imagination is a higher activity. Now, art historians may see it the other way around. We combine historical analysis, the weighing of evidence, all the stuff that, that people who deal with texts are, are, are required to do. We have to, as you rightly point out just now, you combine it with visual analysis based on a very different kind of evidence. So we're having to put two things together to make sense of what our subject. And I won't try to diminish the biographer's job because that too has its dimensions that art historians don't have to have, mm -hmm. presumably. But I think of course it's a necessary part of what we, we do, but you have to be extremely careful to use your sources judiciously to question the sources. What does this tell us um, that we can count on that's, that we know to be true or does it reflect nearly the biases of that particular time? Um, and that's where the visual analysis comes into play because art will tell you sometimes truths that are not voiced in that period, but in words. That is so true. <laughs> and I really like you saying this, use the sources to question the sources. I, I'm going to have to put that up on my bulletin board and use it as a, a guiding rule. One of the Ten Commandments, according to Mary Gerhardt. <laughs> I think that was very well said. And, and I'm glad you just I'm glad I asked you that. And you you answered it the way that you did, because I think we don't talk about that enough, maybe. And Artemisia presents a really important opportunity to maybe think through the methodologies of art history and how how they're working or not working. Uh, there's there's so much more that I, I, I wish I could get into with you. And I'm looking at the time and I'm realizing that we've taken up a lot of your time. We never do quite get through all of the book uh, in, in these interviews, but maybe that's a good thing because it forces everyone now who's very interested up until chapter four or five to, to go and buy it and, and read the rest and, and think through what you would have asked Mary Gerard if you'd had the, the lucky opportunity that I have today to, to interview her. Well, I want to ask the traditional last question of, of each podcast episode, which is to, if you will, tell us what you're working working on now, what we can look forward to in, in future years in terms of projects from you? Well, right now I'm working on something that has absolutely nothing to do with Artemisia or 
indeed, Renaissance and Baroque art history, Norma Browdy and I are collaborating again on a project to write and uh, to curate an exhibition at uh, the American University Museum uh, of an artist named Diane Burko, B-U-R-K-O, who is a climate change artist. She's been working for the past uh, 10 or more years specifically with the issue of climate change, bringing her history as an activist to bear on that. I've written a long catalog essay, Norma's written a somewhat shorter one, uh, and we are very happily engaged in uh, working with the artist uh, to, you know, to uh, uh, arrange, install the exhibition and all that. Um, I must say it's it's wonderful change um, because I've never had the, the chance to write about a living artist before and the ability simply to shoot off an email and say, uh, can you just explain this one thing I need to know? It, I only wish that Artemisia could have answered my questions, you know. Oh, yeah. on, on the other hand, I will say that the dead artists aren't quite as demanding as the living artists. So uh, <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's an interesting uh, change, of course. I, I actually, I have some more Artemisia work that I'm probably going to be doing a smaller scale, more, more in the line of um, uh, attribution and, and uh, new new works to be discussed, but uh, it's not going to be a book as far as I can tell. That's think that's done it with these 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 ones that I've, I've yeah. written. Oh, well, we'll we'll be looking forward to to anything and everything that you want to do in the world. And exciting to hear you working on a project with Norma Browdy. I mentioned those books that you both co-edited. That, gosh, I'm not sure there's any single book or books that I assign more from. My students who are listening to this will be like, oh, Mary Gerard, we know we know her. She <laughs> she's the editor of that book that we always have to read from. If if you're not familiar with those co-edited volumes, definitely get get on Amazon or to your local bookseller or the library to, to check those out. Well, Mary, I really enjoyed talking to you about this particular book today. I, I cannot encourage listeners enough to please go get yourself a copy. If you're looking for some inspiration, you're looking for some new knowledge, I think this is the summer reading book for you. So huge thanks to Mary for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Allison. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure to talk with you about this. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank for you for your great questions. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad that they were, were good ones. So I hope listeners think I asked everything that I should have. So my name is Allison Lee, and you've been listening to New Books and Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I've been talking to the amazing Mary Garrard about her new book, Artemisia Gentileschi and Feminism in Early Modern Europe. Thank you so much for listening.